All right. Well, good morning again. Thanks for saying good morning back. I enjoy that too. Uh, if you're visiting, as Philip said on the video, my name is Peter, and uh, I, I want to say thank you for joining us. There's a lot of things to do on a Sunday, and especially if you might be a football fan, maybe a Seahawks fan, the risk of this guy on the platform up here talking up until the game kicks off, I mean, it's a big risk, and I appreciate y'all joining us. Again, we are the Springs. Welcome to the Springs. Uh, we like everyone to know that we're part of a larger family named Every Nation, and we will spring forth unto every nation with more Jesus by growing in being followers of Christ, family-focused, and fishers for men. So today, I have the privilege of sharing a, a very special, personal message uh, that might be familiar to some of y'all. It's a message entitled, Fourth Quarter Comeback. Come on, fourth quarter comeback. You know, I, I, I recently uh, considered changing the title of this message after the, uh, the biggest fourth quarter comeback in bowl history about one week ago. My Oregon Ducks lost to the TCU Horn Frogs. But I'm going to keep my title this morning. It's something about a fourth quarter comeback that we all love. There's something that resonates in our soul because I think it's, it's really how God leads us in life. That, that causes us to desire comebacks. God gives his kids the victory. And it's almost always, if not just always, after we prefer it to come. It's a little harder to say amen to that. See, God doesn't lead us in life, and our lives don't look like all too many of those Spurs games look like, right? They're just wrapped up in the first half. God leads us into victory, and so often after we desire it to come, because he's got greater victories in mind. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet with me. We have one passage today. This is the richness of 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, We have 57 and 58, the last two verses on the screen. But I want to start here. I'll just start with verse 56. So if you have your Bibles, you can uh, open to 1 Corinthians 15. Scroll down to the bottom. 56, it says, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. Now this is where it gets to verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us, context, his chosen, redeemed, formerly rebellious children. He gives us the victory. Everybody say victory. Victory. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, everybody say, therefore. Therefore. This is one consistent thought. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Can somebody say amen? Amen. Y'all can be seated. Would you pray with me? Lord, you know every precious soul in this room. You know the stories, you know the highs and the lows, you know the people who uh, maybe are just getting started with their faith and are are asking so many questions and desiring so many answers. Lord, you know the, the folks in here who maybe who have been doing this for a while and yet are under the weight of shame 
Because no matter how many times I come to church, no matter how many times I read my Bible, there's still this thing that I need breakthrough in that it's hard to trust you in. Lord, I pray that you would grant unto your people here today a resurrected ability to do the most important of things. That's to trust in your specific goodness. Even when we're, when we're waiting on victories that we're desperate for in our families, in our jobs, in relationships, in our bodies. There are very real, very raw, various reasons in this room why it's difficult to trust you. And I would say, Lord, impossible. Just as impossible as a man dead for three days getting up out of a grave. And that's the reason why we can trust that when we say, Lord, help us to trust you, we can see the fruit of it even at the end of this church service today. So grant that today. Change history as you lift our hearts up to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 57 is what I like to call a chest-bumping verse. Right? right before a game, maybe you write it on your shoes. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Boom! Chest bump, right? Then the last verse seems incongruent to me. Therefore, work and labor and some of these, be steadfast and, and toil in some versions say. That seems like that's coming from a whole different section, but it's right in that same thought. Victory and labor. And you know, it's important, it's in fact crucial to know that this encouragement, demand to be steadfast and immovable and to work and labor and the pain that's associated with those things that happen to be your life and mine, it's important to know that all of this is given after the whole chapter of 15, 1 Corinthians 15, is one of the most doubt-crushing, magnificent defenses of the resurrection in all of the Bible. Resurrection. Jesus rose victorious. The most important historical fact that can be analyzed and proven and enjoyed and experienced but how is resurrection experienced? It's resurrecting from what? Death. Jesus rose victorious, and therefore his labor, his toil, his pain is not in vain. That's the reason why we can trust that our labor, our steadfastness, our pain and work is not in vain. Some, some of us maybe have been around... Uh, church people long enough to think that, oh, we're just supposed to deny that pain exists. You know, don't, don't, don't speak about it. No, no, no. Your pain is very real, very raw, very precious to the Lord. And more than just take your pain away, he wants to make your pain unwasted. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we can trust that our pain is not in vain. So Jesus wants to bring you victory. I said, Jesus wants to bring you victory, y'all. Can anyone say amen? amen? Okay, so 
Don't be shocked when it involves labor and even death to something near to you. Can anyone say amen there? Help a brother out up here. So Jesus' resurrection is the thing that enables us to experience the power of God even in difficult moments. And today I want to take you on a tour of my life, a little bit of of our story and our family and in this church, and how we've seen 1 Corinthians 15 verses 57 and 58 more 58 and 57, be shown in our lives. And as I go through this verse, I have one point that I gather that I feel colors this verse a little bit more. It gives more color in my experience. And here's that, here that is, right? Ready? God is more interested in stimulating the fight within you. When I preach this message in Spanish, it's provoking the fight within you. Then he is in your immediate triumph. God is more interested in stimulating the fight within you than he is in your immediate triumph. We tend to notice or desire or long for the immediate triumphs and and the things that we can see before us. And is God really just wanting to withhold pleasure from us? Does he want us to not be happy? Does he want us to lose? No. If we're his kids... He has a bigger view and aspect of our life experience than we do. And so in how he gloriously leads us, he might withhold something small to gain a a greater victory in us, a steadfastness, so that he can give us a greater victory. And our job is to trust him. I love this quote from Nicky Gumbel, an amazing pastor and On the other side of the pond, he says, too often we try to use God to change our circumstances when God is trying to use our circumstances to change us. Well, will you let that happen today? Will you not stop short in the third quarter if God's wanting to give you a greater victory than that which you might long for, obsess over, if you're me, like me? Would you let God do something greater inside of your heart for a greater kingdom benefit to you and others than you otherwise might have been ready for. Can we dive in deep today, family? He's more interested in stimulating the fight within you than he is in your immediate triumph. Because he's a resurrected God who thus enables us to be steadfast. And when we labor in him, none of that that labor, pain, waiting, toil is in vain. I want to show you how this has been true in my life. Uh, As I shared before many times, I was led to Christ through a student-empowering campus ministry in high school. And prior to that, I thought I knew Jesus, but really, I treated Jesus more like a genie on my shoulder. I wanted to use his powers to get the things that I wanted, that I already desired. That's really how I treated Jesus. And so that was the self-deception I lived under. It was all too common in our culture, where I do the religious things and think I know God, but I'm just deceived into thinking I know God. I'll go to church every once in a while, but I didn't know God. And then I was led to Jesus by a student movement. Long story short, before I even started to look for him, he was looking for me. And he saw me in the rawest of my moments, and he never said, hey, you need to clean yourself up, and then you can, then you can be with me. You need to obey me. No, he, he helped me to obey him because that person I used to be died 
He made me new. It's an old school theological term called regeneration. I was new. And here's one way I knew it. I was led to Christ by a student empowering movement in my math teacher's classroom, Mr. Schuchnicht. And all of a sudden, I started to see the world differently. And here's how I knew. I started to see females differently. I started to get connected. I started to be discipled. I started to get close to Mr. Schuchnicht. And one thing that amazed me about him was his daughter. Okay, and this is the first time I was really attracted to a, a girl's soul and her outward appearance. And I think, I think in that order, too, that God helped me to see a person with a body rather than a body with a person. Anyone say amen? amen? It was God's work by the grace of God in me. God gave me new eyes. And so I started to get close to Mr. Shuknik's daughter. And here's the thing. She was confidently disinterested in me. <laughs> she didn't need my affirmation. She had the daddy's affirmation already. And she wasn't as impressed with me as I was with me. And I felt so rejected. And I was like, God, what's the deal here? I'm following you first. I'm seeing girls new now. And now you're going to treat me like this? This is your servant here? (laughs) Treating me like this? And it's almost as if God was more interested in stimulating the fight within me for my identity in him, not attached to any other relationship, than he was in my immediate triumph of getting the girl. And not that that identity fight has ever stopped, but I'm so grateful for a foundation of the first few years that I could not get what I wanted because my life would be uh, more of a piece of destruction than I was already accustomed to. But look, eventually, Mr. Shuknik's daughter had to go to winter formal with somebody our junior year. And so we have a picture of that. That's us. I've since learned that uh, suits come in sizes. And so uh, when, you, uh, when you wear your dad's suit who weighs 300 pounds and you weigh about 170, then it might look a little funny. So I'm learning my lessons here. And that night, I'll tell you what, it was magical. I was I mean, I I think I got to touch her shoulder when we were dancing. And y'all, I just knew, like, this is the one here. Like, and because God had begun a work in my life, no longer was I asking the question, like, you know, how close can I get to sin without sinning? God helped me to ask the other question. Is, what do I have to do to please you, God? How can you help me to please you, to make you happy? And to honor her purity. And I, I wasn't getting it close to that. I knew, like, I knew before my paradigm, my own uh, subjective morality, when a middle school girlfriend said, hey, maybe we can do this thing together. And my subjective morality said, no, sex is not for middle school. Sex is for high school. <laughs> See, I knew marriage is what God created sex for. And I was like, God, I'm in love with this person. I can wait I can wait till marriage by your power. I can wait till marriage until after high school. And all God said to me was, 
okay, my son, wait on me, delight yourself in me, not today, when I was thinking about her. Okay, I'll delight myself in you. Okay, when do I get to marry her? Okay, get your calendar out. Not today. (laughs) And the not today lasted seven years till after college, but the day came. We have another picture of our wedding day, baby. Mr. Shuknik's daughter got an easier name to pronounce. I don't know if that was her motive, but either way, I got the girl. And that was back, just don't judge me, that was back when I was into gender-neutral hairstyles. So don't hate. I remember prior to the wedding, not today, not today, not today. It's, it's like he was more interested in stimulating the fight for my purity than he was in my immediate triumph of getting married. Because he knew that fight would never stop until I die. Same goes for you. And there is those seven years for the next however many I'm granted by the Lord were really important for me. The hard moments, especially. Does anyone else here have a fight for any of those things? Is God stimulating the fight in you for purity? All of us. So we went right into ministry. I, in college, I got connected to every nation, and I saw in every nation the student movement, this thing that really sparked inside of me, this joy, this dream that I was born into when I was led to Christ by other students. I was led to Christ by other students, and I get to college, and my wife is, was, at the time, she was swimming for the University of Texas, and I got connected to these folks, and they are doing ministry and reaching students. You know, one of the best ways to avoid doing the things you're not supposed to do in life is to be busy doing the things you're supposed to be doing with passion. And I went after college, we went into ministry and just said, we're going to do this. You know, I was pretty good at sports. I was good in school. So ministry should be super easy. And, and I learned after a few days that uh, I, I have some issues and my own leadership flaws, and my repelling peculiarities, and stagnating pride. Don't laugh too hard, guys. You know me. Too close. God was more interested in stimulating the fight within me for his kingdom than he was in my immediate success in the ministry. And that's kind of been our story. We actually, too, we we had some support a few years into ministry. We had a, a church come down and help us to plant a church here in San Marcos. And within a few months, the pastor who came to plant us had relocated to Tennessee. And so I was left here at 26 years old, the only guy to lead. And most people in my situation would be like, God, help me. I'm 26. I'm inexperienced. Help me. And they'd, they would humble themselves and they'd learn stuff. But look, I was different. I was confident. So therefore, I had to learn things in an even harder way. I learned here's another thing to add to my list of things I stink at. And I need God to give me supernatural victory following immense labor and pain and toil. He was more interested in stimulating the fight within me to love his church 
than he was in my immediate church growth success. I'm, I'm, I'm doing a good job. I'm doing a good job preaching that. I need that. I'm still having a fight within me to love his church. I love you guys. You know, if it weren't for difficult moments, I know when I say this, I have to apply it to my future too. If it weren't for difficult moments, I don't think that I would as much treasure Jesus in the midst of today. He's more interested in stimulating the fight within you than he is in your immediate triumph. Now, 2007, I want to share with you something that happened. In the middle of ministry, in the middle of all this, my wife and I felt called to Mexico to go on a mission trip with our our Every Nation crew. We went down to Mexico and we saw amazing things. And I came back after seeing so many miracles with a new passion to reach the nations, a new passion to reach young people. And I also came back with salmonella poisoning. And that was very difficult. And finally, when that was gone, what happened was something worse replaced what was in my body with a salmonella poisoning. After a lot of excruciating weeks, we found out that it was a a lupus reaction, reactive arthritis, that the antigens in my body or whatever the, the proteins or whatever were attacking my own body. And I had inflammation all over. I had pain all over. I couldn't eat or sleep or go to the bathroom without immense pain. And I was just like, God, this is how you reward a dude who goes on missions? What's the deal here? Like, come on. And it's like, he was more interested in stimulating the fight within me than he was for my immediate healing. I believe God has the power to heal. And I prayed and asked him. I also believe that God is more interested in stimulating the fight within me than he is in my immediate triumph. He has greater triumphs than I'm aware of as I pray in the immediacy. And I started to, we went to all sorts of different doctors and a rheumatologist, and I started to feel a little bit better. And by January of the next year of 2008, we had a doctor that said, you know, you seem to be walking a little better, uh, and things, you seem to be managing your pain a little better, but I'm, in looking at your numbers, your C-reactive protein, your, your inflammation is uh, 18 times what's considered dangerous. And uh, he just kind of says this scientifically, of course. Uh, there's one of two things you can do. You can go on this drug, uh, or you can go on this drug, and those are, those are really the only two options you have. Um, but the problem is, is if you don't make a decision soon, uh, your, your organs could break down. I said, what do, what do you mean by that? He said, you, you'll die, essentially. The risk is too great. And he also said, oh, by the way, none of these drugs can you ever have kids on. And we were married for a few years. No kids yet. Kind of wanted to have, have a dream of having a big family. So that was a little hard to process. And I said, okay, doctor, we're going to go pray try to get pregnant, uh, have some little, little kids lay hands on us, do whatever we can before we come back to you with an answer. And for months and months and months, we tried to get pregnant that year. And look, I know people suffer infertility for decades. We, we later, will, I'll share with you, years. But those months when I was unsure about whether or not I was dying, and we were trying to get pregnant, was so difficult. 
And it's like God was more interested in stimulating the fight within me than he was in my immediate success in those few months. And yet little by little, I started to feel better. I, I mean, at one point, I was even walking and shoveling dirt again. And I said, doctor, you got to go back and run these numbers again. And he looked at my numbers and he says, well, you might feel like you're feeling better now. And it's been a few months since I saw you last, but your blood work says that your uh, C-reactive protein is 18 times what's considered dangerous. And I said, that's the exact number as last time, but how do I feel so much better now? And he looks down at his paper. He looks up at me, looks back down and says, oh, this is last time. He flips the page. Long silence, scratching his head, looks back at me and says, I have no idea what's going on, and I have no explanation for this, but your numbers are completely normal. And uh, I said, that's what I was telling you. He's like, what did you do? He said, you changed your diet a little bit. Well, I don't know. I don't think that would work. He says, what else are you doing? I said, well, I've been praying. He says, well, the power of positive thinking has been known in many cases. I said, I've been praying to Jesus. I said, maybe that's why I'm here, because that's silly, positive thinking. I kid you not, three days later, we found out we were pregnant. We have a picture of the ultrasound here. That next spring, we had this little thing out in the hammock, that little Hadassah Rose Dusan. And a few springs later, she is a little, we have another picture here, a beautiful little girl. God is a fourth quarter comebacker. Thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in him your labor is not in vain. One of the greatest prayers through all that, that time that someone prayed for me was that there are a lot of people in anxiety, would pray these anxiety prayers. Like, man, if God doesn't heal you now, there's something wrong with my faith, and I'm going to be anxious about how I pray for you. And I just, I just wanted, that's why I wanted kids to pray for me to get healed. One man did pray. He said, God, don't waste any of this pain and please heal him right on time. That's what he did. He brought a healing. He brought a baby. And yet in the years after Hadassah, she was growing up, she, she started talking early, walking early, wanted to be a big sister early. And uh, we started wanting early too to, to have another baby. Here we go. And it's like the same infertility issues came back. And I'm like, okay, God, what's the deal here? I've I've learned from you, all right? You know, like, we've, we've been through this lesson before. And eventually, we went to a fertility doctor. And uh, our fertility doctor is a family of an immigrant from Iran. And I'm like, I know exactly why we've not been infertile, but just temporarily delayed in our fertility. So I went up to that fertility doctor, and he says, you know, uh, you're, you're infertile. It's, it's, it's my issues here. And, and uh, your numbers aren't even enough to do treatment on. And and so you have this option or this option or this option. And none of them did I have peace, did I have peace about. And I said, how about, I said, how about this? How about if we do none of these things and we get pregnant, you come to church? And he says, okay, we'll see about that. And I was confident here. I was going to do my job. Jesus does his job. You know, we just, I had faith, all right? And nothing happened. 
I'm like, God, what's the deal? And it's like he was more interested in stimulating the fight within me to trust him than he was in my immediate success in another child. The infertility doctor, the fertility doctor eventually even said more like, I don't know how you really even conceived your first child. That's kind of a mystery to me. And yet it's always been in our heart in the middle of all this. Adoption has always been in our, our family plan. Uh, we just kind of thought it would be a little later. And so in the waiting and the pain, it was kind of pushed to the forefront of our focus. Adoption is so huge in such a world where, there's, where babies can be caught in a political argument. Something political when, when the heroes of the pro-life movement are, are these young moms brave enough to carry to term and place the family wanting a baby. I mean, this, I wanted to be a part of this. I wanted to be a pro-life in, in truth, right? And we had a, a, a moment where we were matched with a birth mother. We were called to the hospital. Uh, we stayed in the hotel right next to the hospital. We, we were on our way to go meet the baby, and we got the call from our adoption uh, agency. And they said, uh, the mom has been a little bit coerced, manipulated, we're not sure, kind of talked out of her decision, made to feel shameful of her decision to place for adoption. And we just felt like the air had gone out of our lungs. Like, God, you've given us this desire to adopt a baby. And yet this, and I'll tell you all, months and months and months and months of waiting, pretty much a whole year of darkness, of difficulty. And I I can look back now and say, in those moments, God was more interested in stimulating the fight within us than he was in our immediate adoption triumph. One night, April 29th, 2012, we had a moment in church here where we were called to, together, the Holy Spirit called my wife to come up front, respond to an altar call, and, and, and give God our unforgiveness, our pain. It was, a, it was a very lucid night. And that night, he was more interested in stimulating the fight in our hearts for forgiveness than he was in our immediate triumph of having any news of any next things in our family. And the next morning, we got a call. Monday morning, the 30th of April, 2012, we got a call. There was a baby in the NICU who was born with his guts on the outside of him, and he had a a dangerous trek ahead of him in the next month. And we were asked to pray about this. And so we come up, we can see these pictures of this child, (sighs) this little baby, we had a lot of confirmation that this, this is our, our, our man of indignation, our Asa Peter. We made a decision to adopt him right there in the hospital. And uh, we have another picture of Hattie getting to be a big sister finally. Go back to the first picture. When I first saw this and for a while seeing the pain that this little baby would go through and during his surgery and not being able to eat for a month uh, because of how they had to to make restoration of his gut, and knowing that most kids who die from this, it's the coming months when they're not able to digest food. I remember thinking, God, why would you allow such a beautiful little baby boy to go through all this pain? I remember strongly the Lord telling me, to you it's just a cute little baby. But to me, this is a little warrior that I've brought into this earth to be a beacon of healing in a culture, in a people of death. 
And right now, I am more interested in stimulating the fight within him than I am in his immediate triumph. We brought him home. Remarkable how quickly he started to eat well. We have a few more pictures of him eating his first year. I mean, the dude just pounds food. And sometimes he gets some in his mouth, too. We actually had done a small procedure for my fertility right before adopting Asa. And right after getting him home, we found out that it didn't work by the numbers. The, the, the news, the, diag- the diagnosis was, you know, we, we, our numbers hadn't increased enough to do treatment on. So that was the news of our fertility doctor. But a different doctor had a different opinion. And that doctor's name is Jesus. He, only, he has the final opinion. And her name is Alma. We uh, conceived her two months after getting Asa home. And uh, we have, in fact, Asa was still a baby. This next picture of them together. Um, man, it's been a crazy few years, these last few years. Because Jesus even doubled down. He, Jesus said, just so you know, I'll double down on, on what you know, like who gets the opinion on fertility. Because the next spring, Alma was still a baby and she, had, she didn't get to be the baby anymore. So we have a picture of her holding Bethlehem Ellen, born this last spring. <sighs> you know, we have, we have Hattie, our two little redheads. Hold, it's our two redheads there. Then our whole family together, this last picture. You know, if it weren't for the many painful, dark moments... I would be prone to thinking that children are essentially biological and not a gift from a providential God. God has been more interested in stimulating the fight within me for something much greater than I desired at the moment. He wanted to give me greater desires, greater fortitude, greater trust in him for a greater provision and a greater victory than I was ready for because he's a good God. His goodness is more intimate than we're comfortable with and his greatness is more holy and righteous and aware than we are. And if we're to be his children, we need to be ready for a wild ride that's unexpected to us and not to him. Now one ridiculous confession in the middle of all this I've preached this message a few times in the last year. And the first several times I preached it, I was under the impression that this was a message about the story of my past and not of my present and my future. And I've since realized that that's not true. In fact, even this year in church, the third quarter of our year in 2015 was one of the most difficult years. I mean, it was an extremely difficult year in a lot of ways. The low of my lows as far as my disposition as a pastor was probably October of this last year. And yet, the high of my highs in this seven-year history so far of our church came in November, the fourth quarter of our year. And it just goes to show it's good that Jesus is leading this church and not me, ultimately. (laughs) Because he's steadfast and immovable. And he's resurrected. And he is risen. And that's why we can be the same and trust in his goodness. Be steadfast and immovable. 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor, precious brothers, children, it's not in vain, it's not wasted. Why? Because thanks be to God, he gives us the victory always in Christ Jesus. Let me ask you this, what are you fighting? What's on the forefront of your concern and anxiety? What are you laboring in? What's the pain and the toil of your heart and your relationships? Are are you letting Jesus lead you in victory even if you don't taste or foresee the triumph now? Or are you quitting in the third quarter? Are you resolving in your heart even simple, subtle things like, oh, I know he's a loving God, but maybe not toward me. I, I can see it with others. The danger of that unbelief cannot be overstated. Would you stand to your feet with me, please? We're going to go into one last song, and really this is an opportunity to respond. There is one man who cried out, for a fourth quarter comeback. And yet he, he heard only the excruciating silence that followed. He said, Father, if there's any other way, let there, be, let there be some other way. And yet, there was no other way for him. And Jesus joyfully chose to fight, even unto death, for you and for me. And here's why. Because all of our steadfastness and toil and labor combined on our own is not enough. It is in vain on our own. All of your best effort, your New Year's resolutions, your desires to be righteous, to clean yourself up, all on your own, it's not only in vain, it's an offense to a righteous God. Because he's provided another way for you. It's through the the power of Jesus that you have the resurrected ability to not have your efforts be in vain. I'm going to ask the prayer team that I've talked to already to come forward. Jesus went to the cross for us. And there was no fourth quarter comeback for him. But there was the greatest overtime victory in the history of the world. And that's the only reason that we can stand here and say, the very real things that I struggle with, that I need to surrender to God, he is able to meet me right here to stimulate the fight within me to trust him and who he is. Now, if that's you, if you if struggle to trust that he loves you, And the one who loves you is the one who has a great plan for you. The one who loves you is the one who knows how he's going to use this thing for a greater thing. Don't underestimate the miracle of you turning from your mistrust in that and placing your trust again in a good God. Now at the risk of embarrassing anyone, I don't want to embarrass anyone, but if you need to come up front during this last song and pray with another person who's, who all the people up here, God is still stimulating the fight within them. He gives us one another to, to trust him and to walk out repentance. During this last song, 
I invite everyone in here to, to surrender again to the trust in Jesus. If you've never, for the first time, surrendered to trusting in the love and the incomparable riches in Jesus, now is your moment. You can do it right where you are. That's the scandal of the gospel. He knows your heart. Pray to him. You can come up front. But I'm going to say, do business with God during this last song. And I'll come back up and close.